Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Naftali Harris, co-founder and CEO of Centrelink, an identity verification platform that's raised $85 million in funding. Naftali, thanks for chatting with me today. Brett, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. You know, maybe my professional history starts back in undergrad. So I was at the University of Chicago, and when I was in orientation week, like literally the very first week, I met a man who had become a very close friend of mine, uh, Max Blumenfeld. Uh, who was also in the same freshman dorm as me. And we became really close friends. In college, we kicked around dumb business ideas uh, together. Spoiler alert, Max becomes my co-founder <laughs> later in the story. But um, after college, we went our separate ways. And then later, I became the first data scientist at the online lender Affirm. I dropped out of grad school for it. And the first thing I did when I got there you know, was recruit my friend Max to lead the risk operations team. And together, we essentially built all of the risk systems at Affirm. So Affirm, if you uh, listeners don't know it, is an online lender. Uh, they make loans for people to purchase items online. And we had the incredible opportunity to decide who Affirm would actually lend to. So I had a team of engineers and data scientists that built the code and models around approvals and declines. Mm -hmm. And then my friend and future co-founder, Max, ran the risk operations team. So he had a team of analysts that would manually review cases looking for fraud. And it's really there that I think uh, we kind of got our start and learned a lot about risk and fraud and identity and ultimately the place that where we had the idea for Centrelink. And talk to me about making that jump. So when you left a firm to start the company, what was going on inside your head? What were those conversations like with your family and friends? Did people think you were crazy or was this just like the logical path that you knew you would always end up pursuing? Well, I kind of always knew that I wanted to do a startup at some point, but I didn't know what it would be. And when we are at a firm, the idea just sort of like smacked us in the face. So Brad, I'll tell you what happened here. So one day we were looking through applications for credit and we came across something really interesting, which was 12 applications for credit, all of whom had the same name and date of birth, but 12 different SSNs. And so we're looking at this and we're like, you mean to tell me there's 12 people with the same name, all born on the same day that decided today's the day they're going to go apply to a firm? Like this doesn't make sense, right? And so we looked at it and we're like, this is clearly fraud of some sort. Like, let's just go shut it down. And we went to go shut it down. But to my surprise, before doing so, I looked if they had credit reports. And to my surprise, all 12 of those identities had real credit reports with really good credit scores. And I was like, how is this even possible? Well, if you looked at one of their credit reports, we found that each of these identities had a real credit report with a bunch of credit given to them by every major bank and lender in the United States. And so Max and I looked at this and we said to ourselves, this is crazy. We know that these are not real people. We know there's some kind of fraud happening here, but the bureaus don't know that because they made a credit report for these fake people. And every major bank, every major lender, every financial institution in the United States doesn't know it either because <laughs> they're throwing money at them, right? Mm -hmm. And so this idea just sort of smacked us in the face. And in terms of actually starting the company, the first call actually was to the CEO of a firm, Max Levchen. Mm -hmm. who uh, I didn't know what to expect there when we were like, hey, we want to leave your company and start a new one. But to Max Lepchin's, uh great credit, 
he um, wasn't mad at us and in fact was really excited about it and uh, offered to lead our seed round. And so that's really how we got the company off the ground. Yeah, I feel like that can only really go two ways, right? Either super supportive or the threats come, you know, you're never going to work in this town again and, and it's finished. So glad to hear that he was supportive of the idea. Yeah, he was super supportive and um, he's been a huge supporter of me throughout my whole career and I'm super grateful to him for it. Yeah, that's so amazing. And before we dive deeper into the company, a couple of other questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Ooh, what CEO? There's a lot of really great ones out there. Some sort of, who are kind of contemporaries to me, but um, maybe one that um, is a little bit off the beaten track that most of your listeners wouldn't know about, but I think is a story really worth learning and learning the lessons from is um, a gentleman named Bob Gaskins. So Bob was initially a product manager. He's actually the guy that invented PowerPoint, like the same PowerPoint that all of us use today. Mm -hmm. um, this was back in the, I think, late 70s, early 80s maybe 80s. And it was really the deep insights he had about how people did presentations to others that led him to create PowerPoint, ultimately end up leading, essentially leading the, the division. And then when they got acquired by Microsoft, so I, I think he became general manager or CEO of PowerPoint division or something like that. But I read his memoirs on it and it's, uh, it's incredible. I mean, it's a, essentially a startup journey before I think they even called them startups. It's just incredible, like how he translated this really deep insights about people and how they presented to others and turned it into a product and then turned that into a company. Nice. I always love when founders come on and share someone that's not obvious. Most of the time you hear like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and it's like, oh yeah, of course these people are influential and of course they're interesting, but let's dig a layer deeper. So that's a, that's a good example. I've not heard of him actually, so I'm excited to dig into that. Yeah, I'll take a second to plug his book. He, um, it's uh, Sweating Bullets, uh, but get it, Sweating Bullets. Uh, it's about PowerPoint uh, by Bob Gassens. It's on his website, actually. I think you can just uh, yeah, download the PDF if you want it. Uh, but it's, it's super interesting. It's the best book I've read on product management, actually. Nice. I'll have to check that out. And what about other books? So uh, the way I like to phrase this question, and I, I stole this from someone else, but it's they call it a quake book. So it's a, a book that you read that really just like rocks your worldview and, and influences how you view the world. What's a good quake book for you? And like, this doesn't have to be a business book. It can just be a book that really influenced how you think about things. Uh, it's not a book. It's a play, Henry V by Shakespeare. I read it literally like 30 times. I've seen it performed a couple of times as well. And every time yeah, I go through it, there's like another thing that like pops out at me. There's just so much packed into that. I mean, it's a book about leadership and conflicts and betrayal and, you know, devoting yourself to something bigger than you and love. There's just so much stuff in there. And like, if you are involved in startups, either leading one or, or part of one, you can't read it and not just like, <laughs> and not be like, wow, Shakespeare was writing about me. It's, it's truly outstanding, outstanding play. Nice. You're really coming with the original unique insights here. First time after, I think, 160 episodes that someone has said a play. So I'll have to check that out as well. Yeah, it's, it's really terrific. There's a, um, the play is, I mean, it's Shakespeare, so it's, you know, somewhat accessible, somewhat not. There's a really good um, movie adaptation as well with Kenneth Branagh, which is also quite good. So nice. Very cool. We'll have to check that out. Now let's dive deeper into the company. So the origin story was super helpful and I, I think that set the table and provided some great context. Let's talk a bit more about the product. So let's just pretend that I'm a potential customer. What's the pitch? What's that pitch that you're making to me? So we actually call our customers partners because that reflects how we view them. 
But if you're a prospective partner of ours, uh, you would be a bank, for example, and let's say you issue credit cards. One of the challenges that you have as a bank is to figure out when you're issuing a credit card to someone, is the person you're giving the card to actually the person that they say they are? You know, someone shows up, they say, yeah, my name is John Smith. Is it actually John Smith? And in fact, is John Smith even a real person to begin with? And we help banks answer those kinds of questions. So the way that it works is before you give that new credit card to John Smith, you'll send over information about the application. So, you know, the name, the phone number, the email address, stuff like that. We'll score that application and figure out, is this person a real person? Are they who they say they are? And is there any other sort of risk associated with the application? Got it. That's fascinating. And can you give us an idea of the type of adoption and the growth that you're seeing right now with partners? It's been tremendous. Uh, We work with seven of the top 15 banks in the country, five of the 10 largest credit unions, uh, several dozen fintech unicorns. It's something like over 300 financial institutions in total. And every day we process a million identity verifications, over a million. So a million times a day that uh, we help people to open up new credit cards or to get auto loans or open up a checking account or some kind of purchase finance. And then perhaps a statistic that is nearest to my heart, every day we stop 5,000 ID theft attempts. So 5,000 times a day that someone or someone's loved one has their identity stolen and a criminal is trying to misuse it and wreck their credit and defraud a financial institution. And 5,000 times a day we stop that. And what's the status quo for banks and financial institutions if they're not using something like you? Are they just doing it manually or what's the alternative? You know, identity verification is a really challenging problem. And so there's really a hodgepodge of different things that people will try to do. When we first work with a partner, we often find them in different states. Sometimes their systems are totally broken and it's a mix of some stuff they've done internally and some legacy vendors and a whole bunch of different stuff and there's a whole bunch of fraud. Interestingly, sometimes we actually find the opposite issue where they're so concerned about fraud that they don't let in enough good customers. And one of the things we can help them to do is actually approve more people who are who they say they are, they just might be harder to verify. So, you know, the state of the world before we start working with a partner can actually be quite different. Super interesting. And how did you go about building trust with banks and financial institutions? Yeah, this is some some serious stuff, right? If you're technology ends up being wrong, it could be very costly to them. So how did you build that early trust? And maybe if you can talk me through and you don't have to say names, but let's just talk through maybe some of those you know early partners that you were able to secure a deal with. Well, I think, you know, financial services is a very conservative industry. And so I think one of the key things that we've done is just really play the long game. You know, we expect to be operating this company for a really long time and have a great business. And so we really orient ourselves towards like long-term thinking and long-term partnership as opposed to, you know, trying to do some scorched earth thing and, you know, try to get everyone, uh, you know, to pay us now or something like that at the expense of the future. But I think the way that we really have established trust, you know, in addition to having that mentality is really through one of our corporate values, which is follow through. And follow through is the simple property of doing the things that you say that you will. And that's really easy to say. <laughs> In fact, you think it'd be easy to do, but it really isn't. You know, I encourage every listener, go reflect on other people in your life and on yourself. And do, do people do the things that they say that they will? And you'll find that actually most people don't. And, you know, it's not, it's not malicious. It's, you know, oh, you know, this slipped or I forgot about it or you know, whatever. But as you, as you think about it, it's actually really hard to do. And for us as a young company, having that be a corporate value and, and having it be the case that anytime anyone at Sendling says, 
this will happen by the end of the week. You can be darn sure that by 11.59 p.m. with 59 seconds on Friday night, it'll be done. And that's just an incredible way to engender uh, trust and uh, something that's working fairly well for us at Soundlink. But how do you make those core values real? Because that's one thing that I've seen with uh, a lot of companies is, you know, they'll have the core values. It'll be beautifully displayed on the website. They'll maybe even be on the office somewhere. But actually making those like real and operationalizing them is very tough. So what have you done to really operationalize those core values and make them real? That's a really good question. And we've done a, a lot there. The first thing, which I think is actually foundational, is I didn't invent the corporate values. I didn't say, oh, follow throughs are a great value. Like it's our value and, and decide that would be our value going forward. No, I didn't invent them. I just wrote them down. Like this was something that the team already valued and all I did was articulate it and, and write them down. So we only have four values, uh, follow through, do something smart, deep understanding and whatever it takes. And I think the first, the foundational thing is these are our actual values, not something that, you know, I, I thought or someone else thought should be the important thing. But in terms of how we actually make these values flow through the entire organization, there's quite a lot. We hire against them. You know, so we explicitly evaluate people in our interview process against them to make sure that candidates understand what they are. We explain them to candidates as part of the interview process. When people join, I do a session with them on the values again. <laughs> I love doing it. Um, it's a lot of fun, but I, I, I walk through each one and I explain the different intricacies of them and sort of sub values and implications and things of that sort. Every Friday at our all hands, we start by recognizing each other as true sound linkers for upholding corporate values. And so people describe you know, something good that someone else on the team did and the corporate value that it reflects. And so, you know, for example, they'll say, oh, you know, I nominate Seth for deep understanding because he really understood ACH fraud or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, um, you know, it's things like that, which are really what carry it through the entire organization. And something else you mentioned there at the the start there is, you know, your long-term thinking and how that's helped you build trust. And how do you maintain that you know, high-level, long-term game when there's short-term pressure? Because I have to imagine you're like many of the other startups out there right now where there's some pressure to hit revenue goals, to hit growth goals. Everyone's you know, worried about funding, it seems like. like. How do you balance that desire to play the long game with some of those maybe short-term things that need to be worked on? I think, once again, it's really a matter of values. And I think kind of a, from a structural perspective, you know, it means making sure that the people on the team are aligned to those values and not just the people who work at Centrelink as employees, but even everyone involved with us. You know, so I'm talking about our investors, for example. Like one thing that we've done really well is our investors are some of the most thoughtful, strategic people around. And and for them, yeah, actually, it's funny. They encourage us to think longer term than I am thinking. <laughs> and I think having people like that, that are supportive and not trying to put pressure on us to sacrifice the long-term in order to get the short-term, I think that's really what enables you to have that sort of long-term focus and to build a company with with that as a, a sort of a, a key focus area. Mm, super interesting. What about market categories? You mentioned identity verification is you know, pretty established. Like, Do you view this as an identity verification platform or how do you think about your market category and how are your partners thinking about the market category? That's a really deep question because there's so much that goes <laughs> into that. I would view us, our North Star at Centrelink is identity verification. It's fundamentally answering the question, are you who you say you are? Or even more generally, who are you? This is our North Star. And, you know, so I think categories that people might consider us identity verification or fraud prevention would be kind of the leading ones that maybe people would consider us to be part of. 
But the thing that's interesting about this is there is really no solution to this question today. And I'll even include Sentinel in that. Like we're not a complete solution to that, nor is anybody else out there. And so I think for us, the thing that's so exciting is that there's an opportunity to build a company that really understands the answer to this question. You know, who are you or are you who you say you are? I think that's just such an incredibly exciting opportunity to, you know, maybe in your language, Brett, this would be to really create a category from a, a bunch of fragmentation. You just made my heart start racing when you said that. <laughs> All about category creation or you know, redefining existing categories. So super, super interesting. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, another thing I want to ask about is, you know, Let's just look at this problem. Like, why is the problem so difficult to solve? Obviously, I'm an outsider looking in. To me, it's like, yeah, it seems straightforward. But as you've just described, like, it's not easy. It's a big problem. So you just talk us through in like layman's terms, like why it's so difficult to solve this problem? Yeah, the reason it's difficult to solve is there are a lot of people out there and they have different characteristics, some which overlap, some which don't. So for example, you know, your name is Brett Stapper. You're probably not the only bread stapper in the United States. And so figuring out which one is you versus some other person could be a challenge. There are certain populations that are especially hard to verify. So young people in particular are difficult because they don't have much of an established history. People that move around a lot or that perhaps are not as affluent as others and are, you know, switching between phone numbers or email addresses are hard to verify. You can be challenging to figure out, is this person, for example, it can be challenging to figure out, is this person an immigrant, like someone who just came to the United States, or does this person not exist at all? And that's why they don't have very much history. So it's all sorts of questions like that that make this a difficult challenge. And are there any plans now, or have you already started this to expand outside of the US, or is it just a completely different game when it comes to doing identity verification in different countries? We've uh, consciously decided not to expand beyond the United States, at least for the foreseeable future. And the reason for that is we want to be really good at something as opposed to mediocre at a lot of things. And you know, the problem is fundamentally different in different countries. I mean, there are different systems. In the United States social security numbers are um, an incredibly important feature of identity verification. You know, the different state-by-state driver's licenses are an important feature of identity verification. In other countries, though, it's different. You know, they have other ways in which the government steps in to facilitate identity or identity verification. And the data is different. The social norms are different. These are just different in different countries. And so we've decided, let's be really, really good at the United States, which is already a great market. And, you know, it's an American company. And, um, you know, maybe someday much later down the road, we'll expand internationally. But one of the philosophies of Centrelink is we want to be really good at something. We don't want to dilute the value that we have across a bunch of different things or to half-ass something. We just want to make sure everything that we produce is really top quality, the very best on the market. And just to understand the scale of this problem with identity fraud, how big is it? Yeah, are we talking 1 billion, 3 billion, 20 billion? What does that look like? Well, it really depends on how you count. And it depends on um, a lot of things. But just to give you a couple of examples, during the pandemic, fraudsters stole the identities of citizens and used them to get unemployment insurance benefits and other kinds of money from uh, public funds. And that cost tens of billions of dollars just for that particular fraud attack. 
But, you know, that's not all. I mean, in the sense that when, you know, if I steal a dollar, it's not just, oh, you've lost a dollar. There's a lot of additional costs that comes from that. So there's the whole cost of, you know, the person who couldn't get the dollar and people that got declined because they thought they looked like the guy who was trying to steal the dollar and, you know, all the work that goes into fixing these sorts of issues. So the problem in the United States is at least in the tens of billions considered broadly, but it's very difficult to, uh, to put a precise number against it. Yeah. And that makes sense. Cause I guess there's so much there that's hard to quantify too, right? Like the economic loss of that person who just had to waste hours of their time or weeks of their time to go and try to get this fixed. And yeah, maybe they weren't able to get the loan they needed. And then they got at a later date with the higher interest rate. So I guess there's like so many factors there that go into it, right? Yeah, that's right. Interesting. And is this problem just getting worse and worse? Like 20 years ago, you know, what did it look like and, and how has the problem evolved since then? You know, it's interesting. You know, when I talk to um, investors or the press or others, everyone always wants to say, oh, this problem is like getting a lot worse. You know, so, oh, it's like X this year. Now it's like 3X next year or something like that. But it's interesting. I wouldn't say like it gets worse per se. It actually just changes. And so the character of it changes. So, you know, when we started the business, we were focused on a particular kind of fraud called synthetic fraud. So detecting people that don't exist. And that had just jumped. I mean, it was huge. And it, it, that's really kind of what had been spiking. And then, you know, during the pandemic, as I mentioned, identity theft went through the roof. More recently, there have been types of first party fraud that have risen a lot. And so, you know, first party fraud, meaning someone who's being mistruthful about some aspect of their history. And so all these different kinds of frauds, they sort of come in like waves where, oh, you haven't seen any of it. And then it just spikes. And then, you know, two years later, a different kind of fraud spikes. And it, that's sort of the, the character of, of fraud. So is it growing overall? I'm not sure, but it's certainly changing and it's it's constantly evolving. And does that pose a big challenge for what you're building then and, and with your platform? Because I'm guessing it's similar to cybersecurity and I've done some work in cybersecurity and what happens there is it's just whack-a-mole. You know, you solve it one way and then the hackers come back and find a different way. Then that becomes the big thing. And it's just like never ending kind of cat and mouse game. Is it the same for you then? And how do you approach that with a platform that needs to always be able to adapt and change to meet whatever the you know, the hot fraud is for the, the current time? Well, honestly, it's more of an opportunity. I mean, because the fraudsters do something new, boom, that's another product for us. You know, so it's funny, Brad, I was giving you the overview of like a little bit of how fraud has evolved over the last couple of years. I could have been giving you an overview of our product roadmap over the last couple of years. You know, it started with synthetic fraud, it moved into identity theft, and then it moved into first party fraud. And that's all because we were following what the, the latest form of fraud was. So it's, it's more of an opportunity, but in terms of how you stay on top of it, the approach that we take actually is to marry the automated work that we do with machine learning and engineering and some pretty interesting technology with manual review and a, a really deep understanding, again, one of our corporate values, a deep understanding of fraud and identity. And so the way that we actually do that is we have a team of risk analysts that manually review transactions looking for fraud, uh, looking for new forms of fraud, new fraud vectors, new types of things that the processor are doing, and new ideas about how to, how to better stop it. And that's really what keeps us on top of uh, the latest trends. That makes a lot of sense. Now let's go back to the early days and just talk about some of those early go-to-market challenges. Can you recall a specific challenge that you faced and then that you overcame and just talk us through what that challenge was and how you overcame it? Uh, or I'd go to market. Yeah, yeah. probably the, um, the first challenge we had was how do you build a product if you don't have any partners? And how do you get partners if you don't have a product? <laughs> 
Uh, so there's a real chicken egg issue associated with starting uh, the company. And we were able to solve it in a, a really, really interesting way, honestly, by accident, frankly. So we were talking to a prospective partner who we thought it was a small business lender. And we said, you know what? There's no way there could be fraud in small business lending just because, you know, there's a business and you can see the bank transactions and like you can get the income statement and like get the secretary of state filing. There's a lot of data associated with the business that, you know, we thought would make sure there wouldn't be any fraud. And so we're talking to them and we're just kind of, we have the first meeting. We say, yeah, you know what? Just to level set here. We're not trying to sell you because we know, we both know there's no fraud here. But, you know, just a sort of professional, fraud professional, fraud professional, let's tell you a bit about the kinds of fraud that we're seeing. And so we describe it and we say, you know, this is what synthetic fraud looks like. These are sort of the telltale uh, marks of it. We've seen a lot of it in Southern California and here in some other, some other areas. And, and then we part and we, there's no next steps. It was just like, hey, it was great to meet you. We learned a lot. Awesome. And, you know, Let's catch up again sometime soon. And we thought that was the end of it, except that a couple of days later, they actually reached out to us and they said, Hey, we're looking through our database. And, um, you know, after this call and we found some stuff that actually matched the description you gave of the fraud. Can you take a look? And so we hop on another call and they do a screen share and, and lo and behold, it's just textbook, classic synthetic fraud. And, you know, it's funny, like we didn't think there could be fraud and it turned out there was a ton of it. And, um, we ended up working with them on it and ultimately developing a close relationship and then, uh, built a product and ultimately used that to build a business. So I don't know sometimes these problems can be solved in interesting ways. Yeah. That is super interesting. Now, if you were to say, yeah, a few things that motivate you, like what's your day-to-day motivation look like and just overall you know, what are you excited about day to day and everything that you get to work on? And the key driver for me is this problem of identity verification. You know, answering the question of who are you is, I think there's an incredible opportunity to do that. And I think that without exaggeration, I think that problem is, how would I put this, like epic in the sense of like historic. You know, it's interesting, like when before, <laughs> before humanity invented agriculture, everyone knew who everyone else was. You know, there were hunter-gatherers, right? Like you knew everyone, you knew 50 people in your whole life. Um, I'm sure it's a bit of an exaggeration, but that's, you know, it's a first approximation. And then um, eventually we invented cities. And then, you know, this concept of strangers was essentially invented. Like, oh, there's a stranger. Like, who is this person? You know, and then we accelerated even more and eventually got the internet. And now it's like, oh, wow, this you know, person, I haven't even met them in real life before. And, um, you know, all of us at Seminole, like, really believe it's possible to, to answer this question of, are you who you say you are? And, um, you know, I think that that will happen, you know, over the next 10 years. And so being the company to build that and to be literally a part of history is something that's incredibly motivating and compelling to me and something that, uh, you know, keeps me excited, you know, and working hard every day. Nice. I love that. And final question here, let's zoom out three to five years from today. What is that big picture vision for the company? Man, I was talking about 10. Uh, three to five years. So what's our short-term vision here? Um, yeah, let's do 10. Let's, uh, let's go big. So paint a picture for us. What does this look like 10 years from now? Yeah. So you know, 10 years from now, here's how I'd put it. So if you went to, uh, the chief risk officer at a bank today and you said, Hey, how do you figure out if your customers are who they say they are? They would sigh first and be like, okay, it's a long answer. And then they could talk about this for hours, days, weeks, even like all the different details of how the systems work and how they verify this or that. And they make these calls to these vendors and they do these processes and it's a whole long thing. And that contrasts with other TFG WordPress categories. So, you know, if you ask a sales leader, how do you figure out, you know, which opportunities are in which state and who's talked to whom and, you know, 
where everything is at, they'd be like, yeah, you're the CRM, duh. But there's no such thing for identity verification. And so our vision is 10 years down the road, if you ask that same CRO that question, they say, yeah, I use Centrelink, duh. And we've actually solved that question. Amazing. I love that. All right. Well, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this long-term vision, where should they go? Uh, go to our website, Centrelink.com, or follow us on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, and talking about the problem that you're solving and, and how everything works. This has been a lot of fun. I've, I've learned a lot about identity verification. I didn't know much going into it, so it's been a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I think our listeners will as well. So thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being a great interview, Brett. Yeah, no problem. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 